At the beginning of the new year, I have often preached a sermon related to our priorities, our five priorities. And today, what I want to do is preach a sermon related to our passion statement, which is printed right there on the front of your bulletin, bringing people to Christ and Christ-likeness. Next week, Lord willing, we'll get back to the book of John. Last November, I ran into a Christian brother that I had not seen for many years, and we had a cordial conversation. I was disheartened, however, to learn about his wayward adult children. I knew all of his children in their youth. He and his wife raised their children in a Bible-preaching, conservative church with extremely high standards, a church noted for rigid separatism, conservative music, and high expectations of dress and deportment for all of its members. They seemed like excellent parents. The man served in that church as a deacon, and now his adult children are far from the Lord. So what happened? Well, it would be out of place for me to give any kind of final explanation or to identify root causes of complex issues or to assign primary responsibility either to him or to his church. Only Jesus can be the judge of his church, not me. And sometimes the Lord takes his time with the redemption of his people. And we have to accept that. We don't know the end of the story for any of those children or any of our children for that matter. Nevertheless, those kinds of encounters do force you to reflect on the influence of your home and your church on your children, do they not? Our children are immersed in ecclesiastical context that will shape their outlook on Christianity for the duration of their lives. That may be positive and it may be negative, but inevitably, children will react to the culture in which they were raised. Sometimes they will affirm it. Sometimes they'll nudge themselves away from it. Sometimes they'll distance themselves completely from it. But they will react to it. It's inevitable. How do I know that? Because you did. And because I did. Now, do our children think that they are surrounded by perfect Christians? who never struggle with any real problems in life. I wonder if you children out there and you teens look at the adults that way. When I was, say, 14, when I looked around the church in which I was raised, I thought all the adults are pretty much perfect Christians. Inquiring further of this brother about his church membership, I learned that he ended up leaving his church when he began to lose his children. He did not abandon Christianity, but he simply started attending another church. And I pressed the conversation a little further, and I asked for a little clarity on why precisely he left the church. You know, that is a question that haunts all pastors. Why do people leave churches? And the man's response was just instantaneous. When he left the church, he told a pastor... Because it's not okay to not be okay. It's not okay to not be okay in this church. That's the impression that he had. The church environment was so perfect, at least externally, he didn't feel comfortable admitting that he had real problems and he needed some help. Now, that man was not blaming his church for his troubles. He was very clear about that. But at the same time, he really felt like he really just couldn't get help from his church. It was full of holy, pure, separated people who seemed like perfect Christians. But I know children who grew up in that church who are now homeless, homosexual, divorced, atheist, transgendered, and adulterers. Last December, I had a conversation with another brother who had been an elder in his church. This is just a few weeks ago. He is a man of high moral character who is raising his family for the Lord. And as far as I can tell, his children are doing very well. 
I had one of them as a student last semester, and she seemed to be a very fine young Christian lady. But that man also left his church, much to the disappointment of the senior pastor. And for a time, he pastored another church. And I'd always assumed that he had actually left the first church to go past the second church. But when I actually asked him, why did you leave the first church, I was surprised that he said nothing about leaving to go past the other church. It's not actually what he said. Rather, this is what he said, verbatim, because it's not okay to not be okay. Exact same statement, word for word. And I thought, this is really interesting. Now, this man and his wife had attended the church since they were first married, and they appear to have a model Christian home, Christian marriage. I would gladly send her under his pastoral ministry. But the man told me early in our marriage we faced some real difficulties, and we were just kind of afraid to ask for help because everyone around him just seemed so perfect. All these good, clean, holy, separated people. Like, I can't talk to them, admit I have a problem. Well, when you have a couple of conversations like that back to back, they kind of work away at your mind. You know what I'm saying? Right? And I've been thinking through those things all through the Christmas break and thinking, how should we address these things? Some of you may have seen the documentary that came out last year about Bill Gothard, his Institute of Basic Life Principles, and the Duggar family. I think I watched part of one episode, I can't recall. But the title of the series caught my attention. Shiny, happy people. Well, is that what the church is? A whole bunch of shiny, happy people. Is that the impression that we give to our children or to any visitor who comes in the door? When I was a student at BJU in the 1990s, there was a tremendous amount of emphasis on what was called show window material. We heard that phrase a lot. At Christmas season, a merchant would go fill his front window in his shop with all the glittering merchandise to entice a potential customer to come in the door and to make a purchase. Show window material. Apparently, when students present themselves as good show window material, people are enticed to come in and join the church. The problem is I can tell story after story after story of shattered lives in the 1990s show window material. The world actually does not need perfect Christians. The one perfect Christian left the task of world evangelism to all the imperfect Christians. What the world needs is an answer to the problem of their sin from people who sin. What the world needs is Christians who admit that they are not shiny, happy, show-window material, but in fact broken, hurting people who recognize it's okay not to be okay. Now, the truth is, maybe we are not so shiny in the inside as we appear on the outside. And friends, that is okay. G.K. Chesterton put it very well, the church is not justified because her children never sin, but because they do. I have quoted previously the British intellectual Francis Spufford, who bears repeating... Quote, Christianity isn't supposed to be about gathering all the good people, shiny, happy, squeaky clean, and excluding the bad people, frightening, alien, repulsive, for the very simple reason that there aren't any good people. Christianity certainly can slip into being a cozy, a, a club or a cozy affinity group or a wall against the world, but it isn't supposed to be. What it's supposed to be is a league of the guilty. Now, what really is behind this sermon? Well, again, those two, those two conversations I had were very, very instructive for me. But also, toward the end of last year, several of our elder conversations, whether as a group or as individuals, kept turning in the same direction. We kept returning to the theme of our brokenness. 
and the brokenness of every saint in the Bible. There are no perfect examples other than the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't exist. Don't go looking for them in your Bible. You won't find them. So we don't want to create a culture at UBC where people are given the impression that Christians are all the squeaky clean, shiny, happy, show window material. That's actually not what we're trying to do. And if we have actually given you that impression, we apologize. It's not our attempt. We don't want to create a Christian environment where only the perfect Christians need to apply for membership. And you know, sometimes churches can kind of give off that aura. And the problem is there really are no such people. We all have problems. We all have a sin nature. We all have the remaining toxicity of our flesh that remains even after we've been born again. It is true. We don't have perfect marriages. We are not perfect parents. And every last believer in this room lives with regrets. Now, at this point, I do want to offer a clarification. Whenever our elders had those conversations, someone just rightfully throws up another guardrail so that it wouldn't go across, across the road and careen off the cliff in another direction. You've got to be very careful about this. Here's the guardrail. We're all sinners, but we're never called to wallow in the ditch of our depravity. We cannot justify bad behavior or even celebrate bad behavior as sin simply because, well, we're all in it together. Some Christian communities, I think, react so violently to the shiny, happy, show-window material model that they almost flaunt their sinfulness. Like, oh, look, I sin all the time, but I'm forgiven. It's great. Uh, That's not the culture we want either. So how do we navigate? Well, let's turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, Paul is actually dealing with this very problem in the first century church. Romans chapter 6. In the first three chapters, really three and a half chapters, Paul will eviscerate the depravity of the whole human race. And Joseph read chapter 1 this morning. Then suddenly Paul declares that despite our depravity, guess what? We are justified by faith alone, through grace alone, through Christ alone. And that is his message in First half, second half of chapter 3, right through the end of chapter 5. Our monumental depravity is just wiped out entirely by God's abundant grace. So, does that truth just magnify the grace of God? Yes. Yes, indeed. So if that's the case, shouldn't we just kind of go on sinning all the more lustily to really further magnify God's grace? That's the question that Paul is going to ask now in verse 1 of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Let's just celebrate our sin so we can really just magnify God's grace and overcoming our sin. It just wipes it all out. Well, is that good theology? It seems to have a certain logic to it, but Paul says, no. Look at verse 2, by no means. The King James says, God forbid. It's the strongest possible denial. Don't ever draw that conclusion. But why not? Well, the answer is this, because you died. Don't ever think you should just go right on sending to magnify God's grace. Why not? Because you died. I did? Yes. Keep reading. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Oh, I died to sin? Does it always feel that way? Keep reading. Do you not know? Do you understand this? All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism in the death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We died, and we resurrected with Christ 2,000 years ago. 
And when you were baptized, you symbolized that your identity with Christ in His death and in His resurrection. You are now a new creature. You have died to sin. Keep reading. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know, look at this, we know that our old self was crucified. When? With Him. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That body that you inhabit right now, that you want to go about sinning in, it's brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. So when you read Romans 6, friend, you have no excuse for wallowing in your sin. Our sin was crucified with Christ. And the power of sin in your body was broken, shattered at His cross. So we have no excuse for continuing in the ditch of our depravity, engaging in sinful behavior while piously talking about the wonders of God's grace. Don't ever draw that conclusion. Well then, is Romans 6 claiming that in Christ we are shiny, happy, show-window material? Actually, no. That also is not Paul's point. Look again at the first verse. When Paul asked, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He asked that question because Christians actually can continue living in sin. That's why he asked the question. Look at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul exhorts us to keep on thinking correctly. I have to actually constantly remind myself that actually I did die to sin. Well, why do I have to remind myself of that? Because my flesh wants to go on sinning. Look at verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Well, why does Paul say that? Precisely because it's possible for sin to reign in your mortal body. That's why he says that. Look at verse 13. Do not present your members, your body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. And why does he say that? Why does he say that? Precisely because believers want to present their members to sin. We, we actually want to sin with our bodies. Believers. So apparently we've died with Christ and the power of sin is broken, but we are not automatically shiny, happy, show window material. See, Paul is navigating very, very carefully here. Now, at this point, would you turn to Colossians chapter 3? We're going to come back to Romans in a moment. But let's watch him do this again in Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul tells Christians what they are supposed to do with their fleshly sinful desires. You actually have to follow this very carefully because you might get confused. Now again, in Romans 6, Paul speaks of us having died to sin. Our old self was crucified. We have died with Christ. The crucifixion of our sin has already been accomplished. And Paul says something very similar in Colossians 3 and verse 3. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Well, that, that sounds like my sin problem has already been solved. Does it not? It's solved. Christ took care of it. I'm crucified with Christ. So now I'm like this shiny, happy person. Let's just run off the church with all my fellow believers who are shiny, happy people. And let's just stand up out front like show in the material. And let's just invite the whole world into our perfect community. Let's take all the broken Christians and sort of hide them or send them to a church across town and just invite the whole world in and... Nobody comes. And why not? Why doesn't anyone want that kind of Christianity? Because it's fake. It's actually fake. 
It may glitter on the outside, but what is on the inside? On the one hand, I am crucified with Christ. My sin was completely abolished at His cross, but there is actually more to it, friends. We now have to live out the reality of our crucifixion through the daily mortification of our sin. I already died? Yeah, you've got to keep on dying. Look at verse 5. Put to death. Therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And to whom is Paul speaking? The church. He is speaking to the shiny, happy people. You've got a problem. You are not okay. We are a league of the guilty. So let me ask you this. Look at the text, verse 5. Do we have people in this room that are tempted with sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness? The answer is yes. And how many people? Well, look at the attendance record. That will tell you. So keep reading. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, in these you two once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, that passage is a very delicate exercise in navigating boundaries. On the one hand, Paul refers to our old life. You once walked and lived in sin. It was your whole lifestyle. And if you had only verse 7, you would think, okay, all that is now done. But verses 8 and through 10 imply that actually we have to constantly put off the old lifestyle. Just notice the two expressions in verse 7. You once walked past tense. That's the old me back there. But look at verse 8. But now you must put away. This is present ongoing. So, is it true that Christians are tempted to express anger? Wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, to lie? Yeah. He's talking to Christians. And what Paul is doing here is he's actually offering help to first century Colossian believers. They don't sound to me like perfect Christians at all. The Colossians were anything but shiny, happy people. In fact, at least as far as I'm concerned, when you read the New Testament, you, you won't find any shiny, happy, show-window material in any church in the New Testament. It simply doesn't exist. In my church history class every year, we talk about what I call the myth of the golden age. And sometimes we have this notion that if you go back to the first century, these were all the perfect churches back there, right? What Bible are you reading? The great British Baptist uh, pastor, Benjamin Keach, put it very well when he said, you think about those first Christians, they are mined out of the quarries of paganism. They brought all kinds of problems into the church. So Paul certainly identifies real problems in the Colossian church. But at the same time, Paul won't let those Colossians just wallow in their depravity. The church is a place for people who are not okay to come and get help. The church is a place where we help each other overcome the remaining toxicity of our flesh. So let's, let's just think about this phrase again. It's not okay to not be okay. Is it a problem to insist that everyone has to be okay? Yeah, that's a problem. Should we admit none of us are perfect? We're all broken. We all struggle with sin. Yes. 
Do you want someone to say of our church, well, don't go there, don't go to UBC, because there it's, it's not okay to not be okay. I mean, shouldn't you be horrified if people thought that about UBC? You can't go there, because that's where all perfect Christians are. Don't go there. But on the other hand, what about the opposite statement? Let's think about the phrase, it's okay to not be okay. I know there's too many knots. It's not okay to not be okay. How about this? It's okay to not be okay. Well, should we then just be content with our imperfection? No. Should we be content with our flesh? No. Actually, the opposite statement, when you take the knot out, is still problematic, is it not? Do we want to be the church where everybody comes and just sort of embraces the reality of our sin? Yeah, we're a bunch of sinners here. It's great. That's not what we want either. So how do we navigate through all this complexity? And I suspect that maybe the better way forward is to make a distinction between process and results or outcome. One of the issues that I really struggle with growing up in a very conservative church is this. That church often emphasized the result of sanctification without really discussing the process. Should we, in fact, desire Christian perfection as a result? Yes. All right, I hope so. Is God making all things new? Yes. Is the church of God going to consist ultimately of squeaky clean, shiny, happy people? Yes. I mean, that's our destiny. Are we all going to be show window material, trophies of God's grace adorning the city of New Jerusalem? Yes. I mean, that's the result. That's the outcome. We're trying to achieve But friends, when does this end come? When do we get there? Well, look back at verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. When Jesus finally comes for us in the end and brings us home to glory, friends, that is the result That is the final outcome, but the final result will never be achieved in any church anywhere before the Lord comes. And in fact, every time you add new believers into your church, you have to go all the way back to the beginning and start anew. Every time. You bring a new believer into the church, you've got to start at the very beginning of the sanctification process. I was having breakfast yesterday with one of our brothers, and I was—I suppose he wouldn't mind me telling you this—is Brother Dennis, and uh, we were just discussing the whole sanctification process. And he mentioned to me a man who had a tendency to swear a whole lot, and when he got to the church, he was still swearing. And he said, "You know what? I'm doing a lot better than I used to." I'm not swearing nearly as much as I used to. Well, is that progress? Yes. So what happens when a guy comes to your church and, oops, he swears? It's okay. It's a lot better than it used to be, right? But the fact is, every time you bring a new believer to the church, I mean, you got to start all the way over at the beginning. So what kind of church do we want to be? Do we want to be the kind of church where we're just full of all these believers that are just right there on the doorstep of glory, right? Let's create the perfect church out here. Well... If you do that, you're actually not an evangelistic church. You're not a church that's actually reaching out into the community and bringing lost people in. In fact, when you really get down to evangelism, it's really, really messy. And I can remember many times going out here on the fields during Soccer Fest and hearing some rather foul language coming out of some of those players. You know, and you're sitting there thinking, okay, I don't want my kids to pick up on that. I'm really glad these people are here, right? Because they need the gospel. All right. If you're going to be engaged with the world, then again, you start over every time with the sanctification process. So for now, since we're not a perfect church, what does it look like? Well, look at verse 5. Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. 
What Paul is talking about in verse 5 is a lifelong battle that every believer in every church has to deal with. Whether you're an elder or a deacon, a new convert, we're just, we're all in it together. None of us are okay, and that's okay. And none of us are okay, and that's not okay. And once we embrace that tension, we can really begin to engage the process. Let's engage the process of sanctification, and let's encourage one another toward the final outcome of our sanctification. And let's be honest, none of us are going to achieve it until the Lord calls us home. So with all that in place, let's go back now to Romans chapter 7. I know I go to Romans 7 very often, but to me it's just such an important passage for all of us when we think about our sanctification. It's one of those passages that just really needs to get massaged down into your theological consciousness. And let's just really briefly survey this passage at the outset of a new year and find some encouragement and what Paul says of himself. And as you read this, tell me, was Paul a shiny, happy person? Was Paul show window material? Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. That's a very frank assessment that I'm guessing every believer can make of himself in this room. I know I should obey God, but my flesh is weak. In fact, the harder I try, the more I just end up right in my face. And Paul says he does the very thing he hates. But this is interesting because unregenerate people do not hate sin. So Paul is indeed speaking as a regenerate person. The fact that you at least hate sin... Tells you something has changed inside your heart. That's a start. Verse 16. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. And Paul is saying that if I at least agree that I don't want to do these unlawful things, then I'm at least acknowledging the law is good. And again, that's a start. I'm agreeing with God at this point. That's a start. And so verse 17. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, again, as I've mentioned previously, Paul almost sounds schizophrenic. But actually, examine your own heart. Do you ever feel like there's just two of you in there? There's a shiny, happy person who just sits there in the pew and he looks all squeaky clean like everybody else. And then there's you. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Just look right inside your heart. And Paul describes the old self in verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, clarification, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And Paul makes a concrete assertion and a clarification. Nothing good dwells in me, but wait, I mean in my flesh as if there's two of me. That flesh is the irredeemable part of you. It's the part of you that, the, that he told the Colossians that you've got to mortify. You don't try to improve it. You kill it. You understand the difference? You don't try to improve it little by little by little. You kill it, and you kill it dead. So even when I want to do what's right, there's nothing in my flesh that's actually going to make that happen. Look at verse 19. For I do not do the good I want. But Paul says, the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Ever feel that way? Ever think that nobody else in the room feels that way? Ever come in here and think, I'm the only one that feels this way? Friends, every one of us feels this way if we're honest. Look at verse 20. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. That sounds schizophrenic again. I, I don't want the sin. I really don't. So what's the problem? Well, sin resides in me. Sin is corporate in me. Sin is bound up in my humanity. It is who I am. Then again, who is it that's so angry? It is sin. Augustine tells us that before he was converted, there was no one there on the inside who hated the sin. He loved sin. 
But after his conversion, there was a sort of new conscience that came along and began to express opposition to sin. That's the new man. And the whole passage just reads as a great lamentation that I'm not who I'm supposed to be. So maybe instead of saying it's not okay to not be okay, we should say it's actually normal to not be okay. But then again, don't embrace the normality of the flesh. In the remainder of the chapter, Paul will then speak of this double reality that we all feel, this two-person reality, the old man, the new man, taking up residence in our single selves. Verse 21, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being, but I see in my members and the law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, then, it's okay to not be okay. Why? Because we all have a wretched man living inside of us. Don't deny it. Don't pretend to be a shiny, happy person when you're not. Then again, don't embrace that old man. Paul acknowledges in verse 22, there was a change in our inner being. Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher of the Second Awakening, tells us that at conversion, God comes along and He gives us new affections. Now, they don't instantly override all of our sin and our wretched man, but at least there's some new affections inside of you when you've been born again. Affections for what is right and true. And that's the new identity that we have to begin to live out until Christ returns. So can we put this all together? I recently had lunch with a junior university student. He has a really solid Christian testimony. He is part of a voluntary prayer group that meets daily. This student regularly engages in street evangelism in downtown Greenville, and that's tough. He wanted to have lunch and discuss how to better reach out to an unbeliever that he was evangelizing. And he really struck me as this kind of exemplary Christian student. I mean, he's the shiny, happy show window material. He's the preacher boy, you know? The trouble was, he told me, and I quote, sometimes I feel like I'm not even a believer. Ever feel that way? Sometimes I feel like I'm not even a believer. You ever feel that way? What if I told you I feel that way at times? Okay, you okay with that? Wretched man. Why don't you feel like a believer? Well, he said, because the power of sin is so strong. The lust of the flesh is just horrendous. And the problem with that student is he really didn't know what to do with the wretched man. In fact, no one had actually ever explained to him how he could be a believer and still have a wretched man living on the inside. That actually is troublesome. But at the same time, it was really liberating for him to discover that the wretched man was not the new man. Oh, like this explains me. It actually can be quite liberating to discover that there are two of you. Oh, I have a category now for thinking about all that wretchedness that I hate. But it's there. Now think about it. Why on earth would Paul tell believers to murder the flesh if in fact they never struggle with the flesh? We so easily read the New Testament with the outcome in view. We are concerned with the results of justification. But never forget that Paul actually writes to believers who are engaged in the process. And you've got to engage the process with your children. And it takes a long time. You've got to engage the process with ourselves. And how long will that take? Well, how many years will you live? We've got to embrace the process with our fellow church members. And how long is that going to take? As long as you're fellow members. And we've got to engage the process with whoever walks in that door in 2024, 
whoever comes in. We've just got to be willing to engage the process. And I am quite, quite convinced that there are some churches who would literally have to separate from every New Testament church if they were consistent with their separatism. The fact is, Paul never separated from any church that he planted. And that's because he understood the difference between the process and the result. He told the Colossians to mortify the flesh because, in fact, that church was full of people who needed to mortify the flesh. He told the Galatians to turn aside from those who were bewitching them. Why? Because they had been bewitched. He condemned the sins of the Corinthian believers. Why? Because they were not shiny, happy people. Just read Revelation 2 and 3 and look at the faults that John identifies in the churches of the Revelation. So again, what are we trying to accomplish here at UBC? Let's just be clear that we do not have a sanctification checklist that demonstrates that we are the holiest church in Clemson. We are not the local expression of a holy, separated, pure Christianity in a nationwide fundamentalist network, even though I appreciate holiness and separation. I do. And we are definitely not show-window material of a Christian college in Greenville, South Carolina. That's never been my intention here, even though I love that college and happen to teach there, and I love my students. We're not show-window material. What are we trying to do? Our passion is right there on your bulletin. It's to bring people to Christ and Christ-likeness. And that, that refers to anybody who walks in the door. And that includes every one of us broken people who have already come in that door back there. I always get a little bit nostalgic around January because nine years ago, January 25th, 2015, I walked in the door for the first time. And I fell in love with this church. But I also brought all my problems right through that door. And you guys have ministered to me ever since. And we have to, in turn, minister to everybody else who comes in that door. And frankly, I don't care what you look like when you come in that door. I don't. And I don't think any of our elders do. But I do hope that when you leave that door for the last time, you will be a little closer to the final outcome of greater Christ-likeness. Shall we pray together? And as we bow our heads, can we just take a moment, think back through Romans chapter 7, perhaps Colossians chapter 3, meditate in those verses, and let's prepare our hearts for communion. As we continue to pray, I'm going to ask four of our deacons to come, and we will distribute the elements. If you are here and you're not a believer, this is a table that is set apart for believers, and we invite you to observe what is happening here, because the Apostle Paul says that so long as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we actually preach or we proclaim Christ's death. What we are proclaiming to you is the fact that Jesus died and rose again, and we have identified with him. And it is our desire to mortify the flesh and to live this new life in him. And so if you're an unbeliever, would you just take note of that and ask the Lord to do a great work in your heart and draw you to the cross of Christ. And if you're a believer here, I ask that you would continue to pray and prepare your hearts now for the Lord's table.
Father, we thank You that Your abundant grace has washed away our sin. It has been crucified with Christ. We thank You that the power of sin has been broken in our lives. But as we partake of this bread, we recognize that there is a wretched man living inside of us that needs daily mortification. And I pray, Lord, that you might empower us through this communion service, to renew our efforts, through your Spirit, to battle sin and to grow into greater Christ-likeness until he come. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. Father, we come again to this table that you have ordained through your Son, Jesus Christ, until he come. And we participate now with the cup, affirming our belief that his blood was shed for our sins, that a full atonement was made 
and then our sins have been carried away, buried in the deepest sea. We thank you that we stand before you completely justified through the merits of Jesus Christ. And again, through the Spirit, we pray that you would empower us to live out the new reality that we are brothers and sisters, joint heirs with Christ, adopted into your family. We're thankful the Loshers can be with us here at this table that we celebrate together as fellow church members. And we ask as they go back out into the mission field that you would use their ministry, Lord, to grow your church and that you would bring new people to the table there in France and in Luxembourg. We think of all of our missionaries laboring to serve you. We pray that your body, your kingdom would grow in 2024. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.